Well, a few weeks ago, I was listening to a sermon by a pastor and friend of mine, and he was talking about the way that churches often invite people to come. We often say, come as you are. Of course, what we mean by that is don't try to clean yourself up morally before you come. Don't try to make yourself right with God before you come. Just come. And my pastor friend acknowledged that he has no issue with inviting people to come as they are, but he made a very helpful amendment to that statement. He said, yes, come as you are, but don't expect to stay that way. And that's our subject today. Uh, We've been discussing what it means to follow Jesus. I've said that following Jesus requires faith, it requires the Bible, it requires the church, prayer, and the Holy Spirit. Today, I will add that following Jesus requires change. It requires sanctification. It requires holiness. When we first come to Christ, we do come as we are. In the very first part of this study, we looked at Mark chapter 1 when Jesus called his first disciples to follow him. If you remember, they were going about their business as fishermen when Jesus came along. In fact, Peter and Andrew were in the act of casting their nets into the water when Jesus essentially interrupted and said, follow me and I will make you become fishers of men. They didn't have time to clean themselves up. They certainly didn't say, Lord, can you give us a few minutes? We're not quite ready. The text would have us believe that they left everything and followed immediately. And we could go further. It can be a dangerous thing to tell people that they need to clean themselves up or get right with God before they come to Jesus. Why? Because it's all in vain. We can't make ourselves right with God apart from Jesus. In Matthew 12, verses 43 through 45, Jesus tells the following parable. He says, When the unclean spirit has gone out of a person, it passes through waterless places seeking rest but finds none. Then it says, I will return to my house from which I came. And when it comes, it finds the house empty, swept, and put in order. Then it goes and brings with it seven other spirits, more evil than itself. And they enter and dwell there. And the last state of that person is worse than the first. That's what it's like when we try to make ourselves right with God apart from Christ. We drive out the unclean spirit, we sweep the floor, we make everything look nice, but without Christ, it's all in vain. Jesus says that spirit eventually returns, he sees how nice everything is, and he then returns with seven more evil spirits. So in the end, we're worse off than when we began. So we come to Christ as we are. And what are we? We are the tax collector who went into the temple to pray. The Pharisee who was also there, he represents the person who cleans himself up. When he prayed, he said, God, I thank you that I am not like other men are, extortioners, unjust, adulterers, or even this tax collector. He said, I fast twice a week and I give tithes of all that I get. You know, look how beautifully swept my room is, Lord. I've cleaned it up just for you. 
The tax collector, on the other hand, would not even lift his eyes up to heaven, but he beat his breast, saying, God, be merciful to me, a sinner. The tax collector didn't even try to clean himself up. Why? He knew he couldn't. He had nothing to offer. He went to the Lord empty-handed and ashamed. He couldn't even look up toward heaven. What if he were to catch a glimpse of God? He would likely die on the spot because of his sinfulness in the presence of a holy God. At the very least, he'd be compelled to cry out as Isaiah did, Woe is me, for I am lost. Or as it says in the King James Bible, Woe is me, for I am undone. The Pharisee came to the temple disguised as a righteous man. I say disguised because he wasn't a righteous man. In fact, in that particular case, he was worse off than the tax collector because he presented himself as a righteous man. The tax collector, on the other hand, he came as he was and nothing more. He didn't pretend in the least. And Jesus said, that man, the tax collector, went down to his house justified rather than the other. Come as you are, but don't expect to stay that way. Now, before we talk about the change that's required of us as followers of Jesus, let's take a moment to make a very clear distinction between two very important doctrines of the Bible. That is justification and sanctification. Last weekend, I officiated a funeral, and someone in the family told me, I want you to preach the gospel, but do me a favor. Don't speak Christianese when you do it. Don't use a bunch of big theological words that the average person won't understand. So um, if by chance you have no idea what I mean by justification and sanctification, don't worry. I'll uh, attempt to do as I did last week and explain these terms. You know, it's interesting to observe the progression of church history. It's interesting to see how different doctrines uh, were disputed or were misunderstood at different times in history. For example, the doctrine of justification was tragically misunderstood for years prior to the, the Protestant Reformation. Today, it seems that sanctification is the doctrine that well, I won't say that it's um, misunderstood. I think it's more accurate to say that it's largely ignored. Many pastors and teachers will say to people, come as you are, but they never include that all-important amendment which says, don't expect to stay that way. What do I mean? Well, first of all, let's talk about justification. What is the doctrine of justification? Let's talk about that tax collector who went into the temple and simply prayed, God, be merciful to me, a sinner. Jesus said he left that place justified. What does that mean? What happened to him? Well, first of all, we need to be clear about the fact that we are guilty before God. I was listening to a, a formal debate the other day between a Christian and a Christian turned atheist. And the atheist said, you know what, I got tired of telling people they have a problem they don't think they have. 
He said a large part of his evangelistic efforts were spent trying to convince people that they were guilty sinners so that they would see their need for Christ. In his estimation, we shouldn't need to do that. If people were truly guilty, they would know they were guilty. They would feel it. We wouldn't have to convince them. Maybe you've run into this yourself. Well, here's the thing. We're not guilty because we feel guilty. We are guilty because we are guilty. We are guilty because God's law says we are guilty. And in a sense, we don't feel our guilt because we're guilty. Our sinful rebellion against God runs so deep that we suppress the truth. In Romans 1, Paul says we suppress the truth in unrighteousness. It's as if we hide our sin with more sin. Our very denial of our sinfulness shows us how sinful we really are. Feelings aside, God has declared us guilty, and that's the point. And the doctrine of justification explains how a guilty person can ever be made right. How could God ever declare a guilty person innocent? And for the answer, let's briefly look at Romans chapter 3. Romans chapter 3. You'll notice how Paul spends the first half of the chapter hammering the point that we are all guilty. We are all condemned before God. And he says in verse 19, Now we know that whatever the law says, it it speaks to those who are under the law, so that every mouth may be stopped, and the whole world may be held accountable to God. In other words, we are all under God's law. We are all held to the same standard of His law, and His law says, We are guilty, every last one of us. We have no more arguments to make. We are guilty. Then verse 21. But now, the righteousness of God has been manifested apart from the law, although the law and the prophets bear witness to it. The righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ for all who believe. For there is no distinction For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God and are justified by His grace as a gift through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus, whom God put forward as a propitiation by His blood to be received by faith. This was to show God's righteousness because in His divine forbearance He had passed over former sins. It was to show His righteousness at the present time so that He might be just and the justifier of the one who has faith in Jesus. So in the previous passage, Paul established that we are not righteous. God's law proves we're not righteous. Instead, we are condemned before God. As I said before, we are all guilty. So the question becomes, how can we be made innocent? How can we ever be accepted into God's holy presence in heaven if we are, in fact, guilty and condemned? Well, here's the answer. The law says we're guilty, but the righteousness of God is manifested apart from the law. We need righteousness, right? That's our problem. We lack any semblance of righteousness. And the first point Paul makes here is that the righteousness we need comes apart from the law. 
In other words, you and I are not going to pick ourselves up by the bootstraps, do what the law tells us to do, and make ourselves righteous before God. As Paul has already said, the law only proves our guilt. When we compare ourselves to God's holy and perfect law, all we find are shortcomings. We're not going to meet that standard, for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. Instead, this righteousness we need, Paul says, is of God. That's important to note. This is not our righteousness Paul is talking about. We don't want to make the mistake that Martin Luther made for so many years as he desperately tried to be as righteous as God demands. Luther made himself miserable trying to keep God's law in order to be accepted by God. He was trying to justify himself before God by his works. That is, until he realized that when Scripture speaks of the righteousness we need, it's not talking about the righteousness we personally achieve. It's the righteousness of God. He's the only one who is truly righteous. This righteousness of God, through faith in Jesus Christ, is for all who believe. Verse 24 says, We are justified by His grace as a gift through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus, whom God put forward as a propitiation by His blood to be received by faith. Paul puts it this way in 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 21. He says, For our sake He made Him to be sin who knew no sin, so that in Him we might become the righteousness of God. You see, there's a, an exchange taking place here. Christ, He came in the flesh. He lived under the same law as us, yet He kept that law perfectly, as none of us could ever do. And for that reason, he was qualified to take our punishment upon himself. Paul uses the word propitiation. In his crucifixion and death, Jesus bore the wrath of God meant for us. He redirected that wrath to himself. The word propitiation means he assuaged or he satisfied God's wrath. He appeased God by suffering as only a sinner or a guilty lawbreaker should suffer. So on the one hand, God accepted Jesus as a substitute for us. He made him to be sin who knew no sin. God treated him as though he were us. He imputed. That's one of those, uh, those Christianese words. He imputed our sin to him. But that's not the whole exchange. Because Paul says we... Uh, the sinners whom Christ died for, must become the righteousness of God. Well, how does this happen? Through faith in Jesus Christ for all who believe. In verse 25, Paul says that our, our redemption, the benefits of Christ's propitiation, is to be received by faith. Then verse 26 says, God shows His righteousness at the present time so that He might be just and the justifier of the one who has faith in Jesus. So this is part two of God's imputation. Just as God treated Jesus as a sinner, He treats us as His Son. 
declaring us innocent, declaring us righteous. How? How does one get to this this place of justification? Well, three times in this passage, Paul says it is by faith. It's by believing. It's by trusting in the work of Christ on our behalf. It's by going to God as the tax collector did and pleading, Lord, be merciful to me, a sinner. I have no righteousness of my own. I have nothing to offer, but I believe in what Christ has done. I will trust in Him and in Him alone for my salvation. In the very next chapter, Romans 4, Paul says in verses 4 and 5, Now to the one who works, his wages are not counted as a gift, but as his due. And to the one who does not work, but believes in him, who justifies the ungodly, his faith is counted as righteousness. This is a point that Paul clarifies many times in his writings. We cannot be justified by our works. We cannot be saved by striving to keep the law. No matter how hard we try, at no point will God say to us, okay, you've done enough, I declare you innocent. You can sweep your moral house as many times as you want and you'll still be guilty. As the Pharisees show, you may prove yourself even more guilty because of your self-righteousness. No, the only, way to, the only way that God will ever declare us innocent is through Christ and His truly righteous life and His atoning sacrifice on the cross We will never achieve it on our own. We must turn to Christ in faith. We must believe in Him. So, that's essentially what we mean when we say to sinners, come as you are. Come as you are. But we shouldn't stop there. To the detriment of many, there have been more than a few evangelistic preachers who preach the the doctrine of justification very clearly, very boldly. They speak in no uncertain terms about how sinners can be justified before God and saved. But they say little to nothing about the doctrine of sanctification. They tell people how to be saved. They may assure them of eternal security, you know, once saved, always saved. But they say nothing about holiness or spiritual growth or the fruits of eternal life. They say nothing about sanctification. Come as you are, but don't expect to stay that way. You see, justification explains how we are declared holy. Declared holy. Sanctification explains how we become holy. And if you think to yourself, what does it matter that I become holy. If God has already said I'm holy. Well, let me give you two things to think about. First, Hebrews 12.14. Hebrews 12.14 says, Strive for the holiness without which no one will see the Lord. Strive for the holiness without which no one will see the Lord. The author of Hebrews is writing to presumably believers, people who have already been declared holy through justification, and he tells them to strive 
for holiness. In other words, you may be holy in a legal sense. You may have a holy position before God. But in a practical sense, you're still a work in progress. And without this holiness, no one will see the Lord. Second, Romans 8.29 says, For those whom God foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his Son, in order that he might be the firstborn among many brothers. In other words, holiness, that is, conformity to the perfectly holy Son of God, is the reason we are saved. We are not saved to continue in our sins. Paul addressed that at the start of uh, Romans chapter 6. You see, he assumed that some people would misunderstand his teachings about faith versus works of the law. Was he suggesting that the law doesn't matter? Was he suggesting that we can sin all we want and still be saved? Well, here's how he answers that in Romans 6.1. Are we to continue in sin that grace may abound? By no means. How can we who died to sin still live in it? Do you not know that all of us who have been baptized into Christ Jesus were baptized into his death? We were buried, therefore, with him by baptism into death in order that, just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, we too might walk in newness of life. By no means did God justify us to then sit back and let us continue in the sin that ultimately killed our Savior. No, He saved us to change us. He saved us, declaring us holy, and He immediately began work to make us holy, to conform us to the image of His Son, without which no one will see the Lord. So right there, you have the Bible making two points that really should prompt us to sit up and take notice. They should make us think, okay, this doctrine of sanctification, it it does matter. This is no trivial thing, because without striving for holiness, Hebrews says, I can't see the Lord. And according to Romans, this is why God saved me. He saved me to become holy, like His Son is holy. So obviously, this thing we call sanctification, it does matter. Listen to what Andrew Randall says in his book, Following Jesus. Although God considers us completely holy in Christ, and that can never be taken from us, our lives are still, to a greater or lesser extent, unholy. The great secret is that everyone else is in the same position as you. Not one of us will ever be perfectly holy this side of glory. We will all sin every day until we die, and so we all need God's grace every day until we die. Nonetheless, Over time, we are sanctified, which means that the Holy Spirit works in our lives to transform us so that we come to reflect the likeness of Christ more and more. What is counted true of us becomes true of us. Gradually, haltingly, imperfectly, but really. Earlier I mentioned the Christian who became an atheist. He was actually a pastor. 
He said he got tired of trying to convince people they were guilty of breaking a law they didn't even know existed. I often get the impression impression that people have accepted Jesus, if you will, not because they feel guilty, not because they desire a, a Savior, but because He's a nice accessory in their lives. They have a lovely spouse, a happy home, a good job, and they feel perfectly content. And Jesus, well, he's a, he's a nice little bonus. He's not necessarily life-changing or anything, but he's nice to have. You know, he gives, gives a little depth to life. If nothing else, he teaches us how to be a good person. I would argue that if Christ has not changed us, we don't have Christ at all. Listen to what Paul says in 1 Corinthians 6. Do you not know that the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God? Do not be deceived, neither the sexually immoral, nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor men who practice homosexuality, nor thieves, nor the greedy, nor drunkards, nor revilers, nor swindlers, and we could certainly add uh, many of the so-called lesser sins to that list. He says, they will not inherit the kingdom of God. And such were some of you, but you were washed, you were sanctified, you were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and by the Spirit of our God. Come as you are, but don't expect to stay that way. When Paul writes to the church in Corinth, and let's not forget that this church was Far from perfect. They had all kinds of problems. But when Paul writes to them, he assumes they have been changed from what they once were. They're not the same as they used to be. They don't enjoy their sins as they used to be, as they used to. Now, they may still struggle with some of those sins, but they don't relish them like they did before. They don't habitually practice them any longer. When they came to Christ... In repentance and faith, Christ and His Spirit changed them. And Christ and His Spirit were still changing them. This is Paul's assumption about all believers. I grew up in a a theological tradition that assumed that since salvation is by God's grace alone, which is correct, sinners cannot be actively involved in the least. Um, They contribute nothing. They do nothing in any sense. As strange as it may sound, they believe God may sovereignly save you, possibly without you even knowing about it. Then, if God blesses you at some point in the future, you may hear the gospel, learn of Christ, and believe in Him. But if you do, and yet you don't continue to follow Him throughout your life, well, Once saved, always saved. You'll be fine. Now, I can give them credit for certain points of their their understanding. They're right about certain things. And I, I believe their hearts are in the right place. They're striving to give God all the glory for salvation, but they undermine they unknowingly undermine his glory by undermining his sovereignty, namely over our hearts and minds. 2 Corinthians 5.17 says, if anyone is in Christ, 
He is a new creation. He's not the same. He can't be. And this has real-world, real-life implications. I always think about that uh, illustration from Paul Washer. He talks about the guy who shows up late to a meeting and says, I'm sorry, but sorry that I'm late, but I was on my way. I got a flat tire. I stopped to change it. One of the lug nuts rolled out onto the highway. I went to retrieve it, and I got hit by a logging truck. And everyone at the, the meeting is looking at him going, mm, that's, that's impossible. You can't have an encounter with something as big as a logging truck and walk away unscathed. Well, you can't have a genuine encounter with Almighty God and walk away unchanged. It's impossible. God foretold the new covenant through Ezekiel. And He said, I will sprinkle clean water on you and you shall be clean from all your uncleanness and from all your idols I will cleanse you. And I will give you a new heart and a new spirit I will put within you. And I will remove the heart of stone from your flesh and give you a heart of flesh. And I will put my spirit within you and cause you to walk in my statutes and be careful to obey my rules. The Lord says, I will save you. But I will not save you because you have changed. I will save you to change you. I will change you from the inside out. I will replace your very heart. I will turn your affection from those idols which you, which you once loved to myself. I will put my spirit within you and cause you. Notice that. I will put my spirit within you and cause you to walk in my statutes and be careful to obey my rules. You won't just obey. You'll find yourself wanting to obey. Come as you are, but don't expect to stay that way. And at this point, I think we can revise that statement just a little. We could say, come as you are, but you will not stay that way. God won't allow it. By His power and His grace, you will change. How much will you change? How quickly? Uh, how far will you get in conforming to Christ before your death? Only God knows. But he who began a good work in you will bring it to completion at the day of Jesus Christ. If you are in Christ, his work of sanctification has already begun. You can be sure of that. And you can be sure that he will bring it to completion. One day, you will be perfectly holy. In 1 Peter 1, Starting at verse 3, Peter writes, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. According to His great mercy, He has caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead, to an inheritance that is imperishable, undefiled and unfading, kept in heaven for you, who by God's power are being guarded through faith for a salvation ready to be revealed in the last time. When we set out to follow Christ, this is, this is where we hope to land in the end, right? He saves us for an inheritance that is imperishable, undefiled, unfading, kept in heaven for you. But we are also 
As much as we are saved for that paradise, we are also saved from our sin. Peter continues, jumping down to verse 13. Therefore, preparing your minds for action and being sober-minded, set your hope fully on the grace that will be brought to you at the revelation of Jesus Christ. As obedient children, do not be conformed to the passions of your former ignorance. But as he who called you is holy, you also be holy in all your conduct. Since it is written, you shall be holy, for I am holy. Look forward. Don't look back. Don't be conformed again to your your former passions, those passions that you had before Christ. Why does it matter? You know, if we're heaven-bound, why does it matter? Can't we just live however we want, you know, biding our time until we reach heaven? No, because we aren't just saved for heaven. We are saved from idolatry and those former passions and all of that sin which we once loved so much. Think of the Israelites in the Old Testament. God rescued them from their slavery in Egypt. He led them to the promised land. But notice two things in that story. First, it was utterly foolish of them to crave their old life in slavery. When they met difficult circumstances in the wilderness, they complained, claiming they would have been better off if they had still been in Egypt. That's nonsense. And it's equally foolish for us to crave the sins we were once enslaved to. Second, you'll notice the Israelites spent a fair amount of time wandering the wilderness before they reached the promised land. Why? You know, they were destined for that place. Why didn't God take them there immediately? Well, as we learn from reading their story, they had a lot of lessons to learn. They had lingering sins to be, to be weaned from, if you will. They had discipline to endure. They had growing to do. In short, God spent those 40 years sanctifying them. When God saves us, He doesn't immediately take us to heaven, does He? And that's because we too have growing to do. And God spends the rest of our lives sanctifying us. He says, you shall be holy. And the moment He saves us, that process begins. In Romans 7, Paul writes, my brothers, you have died to the law through the body of Christ so that you may belong to another, to him who has been raised from the dead in order that we may bear fruit for God. For while we were living in the flesh, our sinful passions aroused by the law were at work in our members to bear fruit for death. But now we are released from the law, having died to that which held us captive so that we serve in the new way of the Spirit and not in the old way of the written code. We're no longer slaves to the law. We're no longer slaves to our sinful passions. Yet, in our Christian freedom, we face a new struggle, don't we? And Paul speaks of this when he describes his own struggle. Romans 7.21 So I find it to be a law that when I want to do right, evil lies close at hand. 
For I delight in the law of God in my inner being, but I see in my members another law, waging war against the law of my mind and making me captive to the law of sin that dwells in my members. In a sense, this is what sanctification looks like. It's certainly what sanctification feels like. It feels like a constant struggle between the sinful desires of our flesh and the pure desires of our regenerated hearts to be holy. But keep in mind that this struggle is actually good news. As difficult as it is, as tiring as it can be, this is good news. Because this means we're no longer enslaved to sin. We are free to follow Christ. We are free to pursue good. We are free to strive for holiness. We're not free to continue sinning. We're free to fight against our sin. And better yet, free to overcome it. In his book, Seven Leaders, Ian Ian Murray writes, For the person who fears and loves God, the command, Be ye holy, for I am holy, is not grievous. Rather, it corresponds with an inmost desire. Again, just like justification, sanctification is not an act of picking ourselves up by the bootstraps. Just as justification is all of grace, sanctification is also all of grace. This is God's Spirit working within us. I will put my Spirit within you, God says, and cause you to walk in my statutes and be careful to obey my rules. Philippians 2.12 Work out your own salvation with fear and trembling, for it is God who works in you. Both to will, that is to want or to desire, and to work for His good pleasure. It's truly unfortunate that much of the contemporary church frowns upon the thought of holiness. Of course, they have the wrong idea about it. Well, maybe they don't. Maybe they don't. Not long ago, um, I had an extra copy of J.C. Ryle's book, Holiness, and I gave it to someone, and he read the first chapter on sin, and he said to me, wow, this guy does not make light of sin, does he? No, he doesn't, and for good reason. God does not make light of sin. Sin is what put his son on the cross. But I wonder whether many have minimized teachings about sanctification and holiness because they want to minimize the seriousness of sin and the inevitability of our conformity to Christ. And I say this is unfortunate because there's tremendous joy to be found in a holy life, because there's tremendous joy to be found in Christ. If we're following Him, we will follow Him into greater and greater holiness, not to mention the joy that comes with it. We're not going to find this kind of joy in our sin. We'll find it in holiness, in conformity to Christ. And I'm going to leave you with this. Galatians 2.20 says, I have been crucified with Christ. It is no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. In the life I now live, in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. Commenting on this verse, Todd Wilson writes, 
Paul, of course, the author of Galatians. Paul is tried like Jesus, executed like Jesus, raised like Jesus, and thus now he, like Jesus, lives to God. His life is continually marked by cruciformity. But so too is it continually sustained by resurrection power. The same is true for every one of God's born-again people. We are sustained by God's resurrection power. And we're thankful to God for that because following Jesus requires holiness. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for your spirit and our conversions who entered into our hearts, replacing them with hearts of flesh, making us to know you, making us to know your Son, and then leading us throughout our lives, continually working to remove that sin that we once craved and loved so much. Lord, it is a struggle, but we're thankful for this sanctification. We're thankful to be made more and more like our Lord and Savior. We ask that you would help us daily, moment by moment. Lord, it is a struggle for us. We do oftentimes find temptations unbearable. We crave our old passions. But Lord, your grace is sufficient. You're greater than our sin. And you can lead us away from it. You can help us overcome by your power. We trust in you. Lord, forgive us for the many, many times we have failed. In Christ's name I pray. Amen.